I'm David Cross, and you may know me from my election integrity work, but I also own U.S. Asset Management, a family-owned and operated investment advisory practice. I'm a certified portfolio manager, and my job is to help you make better decisions with your money. One of the things we try to avoid is investing in companies that push the woke agenda. If you're invested with one of the big firms out there, there's a pretty good chance that you're feeding the beast that hates your values. Our company is 100% conservative, and we'd love to have an opportunity to work with you. Check us out at us-am.com and look for our big, proud American Eagle logo. So welcome everybody to episode number, it must be roughly 25th, 27th, I never know, and I really should get, get a grip on it. Um, but again, as I always, um, I will sound like a broken record, what a time to be alive, what a time to be in the podcasting business, and things keep happening all the time. If you thought a war in Ukraine was big, if you thought then um, a atrocious attack on Israel was big um, and you thought that was going to be the end of it for a while well you were sorely mistaken but because at this podcast we do not only dabble into the day-to-day ever-changing squirrel politics um, we also want to to take a look into what makes europe and western the western world great and um, i'm going to hand over to fabian we want to before we dive into the subject matter of what will happen to the Gazans and how we predict what will happen with them. We want to introduce one of those rare categories of European heroes and um, things that, that, that should give us hope in these uh, bleak days. And I think Fabian, you've got way more arrows up your quiver. So over to you. All right, so as thank you, Christian. As, you, as you'd mentioned, we're starting a new series and for all of our viewers um, and listeners, um, Christian just said it. We are now not only going to focus on the negatives of current events, but we're going to focus on the positives. And what are the positives? What have conservatives always done in the past? You learn from history. So we've decided to start a series called The Heroes of Western Civilization. And we're going to focus on people who have overcome adversity, who have done things that have shaped history. And who have contributed in a great way to the way we live today, maybe not in, in, in some ways that we might not even know that they have, but their deeds or what they've done is still so present in our language, our culture, our history, our traditions, and our customs. So we are finishing a very historic weekend, as always, the weekend of uh, November 9th until November 11th is a weekend that commemorates heroes and personalities of 
Christian or Christendom. Uh, at the same time, we are commemorating um, the events of um, the end of World War One, as well as tragic events that came um, that have to do with anti-Semitism and, of course, um, the fall of the Berlin Wall. So, but let me briefly start today. Um, and thank you for putting that up, uh, Todd. Um, this is just a reminder that um, you know Europe. Europe brought forth some very great men and women who fought for what they believed in and ha are still uh, imprinted on the legacy of those nations. So today we're going to focus on two um, Martins. One of them is Saint Martin of Tours, um, and the other is Martin Luther. And anybody who has read Eric Metaxa's book on Martin Luther will actually find out that there's a great link between St. Martin of Tours and Martin Luther. Let me briefly go into Martin of Tours. Martin of Tours was a Roman soldier believed to have born in what is today Hungary. And uh, he was in the uh, Roman army. He was in the cavalry. And the famous instance, which many Europeans, especially Central Europeans, Catholics, but also Protestants will always know is the story where Martin of Tours was next to a fire where a beggar encountered him and the beggar was freezing. This was in the, this is, was in the cold of November possibly. And Martin divided his cloak with his sword and gave the beggar a share of his cloak well that night martin had a dream and in that dream he encountered the lord jesus christ who apparently in this dream um in uh, um, spoke with angels and said this is my friend martin he shared a cloak with me and the next morning martin woke up he was actually arrested uh for the fact that he divided that cloak um, because it was property of the Roman state. Now, um, he later in a town, now I'm going to try, try to pronounce the name correctly, and I know that Eric Metaxa hinted to this. It is called Borbe Tomegus in Latin. The city is now Worms, Germany. we got to keep that in the back of our mind. Um, in this town, St. Martin decided that he is not a member of the Roman army anymore, but he is now a member of the army of Christ. And so he refused to fight where he was thrown out of the Roman army as a traitor, as a coward. But in that town, he defied Roman authority. St. Martin, you have to remember that this town, Worms, would be the town where Martin Luther in 1519 would defy the authority of the emperor of the holy roman empire saying that he cannot recant he not cannot take anything back that he wrote after he uh put the 95 thesis on the uh castle church in wittenberg so there's that linkage between defining authority in the same town um but just briefly to saint martin i don't know if we can put up the pictures of the um of the uh, cathedral in in tour saint martin is a is a uh, is a saint in Europe. He's venerated very much in France and in Germany. Every child, Lucas Christian, you will know this. We have those lantern walks on in, in November. 
Um, usually they're still called St. Martin uh, Lantern Walks. Some um, do-gooders have changed it to um, Stars and, um, or Lichterfest, Stars and Light Festival. But you walk around with a lantern and a usually a, um, a, a, a man dressed up as a Roman soldier is um, leads the charge on, on this lantern walk, which usually ends up in front of a church. So this is very much embedded in um, uh, German or French Central European culture. Um, people usually um, have a, uh, a goose or um, Martin bread that they share. And even despite all of the secularization, Yesterday, even here in the north of Hamburg, which is not a very Catholic um, area, but we still celebrated St. Martin's with a large uh, group of kids yesterday in my, my son's kindergarten. Um, and we went on the lantern walk and sang the Martin song. And there on that cross, this is where he was buried. But uh, in the previous pictures, there's the, the St. Martin's cross where you can see him dividing the cloak. One last thing about the cloak. Um, this is very interesting for the English language. The word cloak, the Latin word is capella, where you actually still get the English word chapel or chaplain from. So St. Martin even lives in the English language. Martin Luther, just one brief note, he was born on November 10th and baptized on November 11th, which is which was yesterday St. Martin's Day. So that's where he gets his name. Um, he was named after St. Martin. And Martin Luther, of course, is the man that defied the church during his time in 1517. Uh, Martin Luther sparked with his actions the Reformation, and the Reformation spread like a wildfire, especially throughout North Central Europe. Um, England defied uh, the Catholic Church. And for many Americans, I would also argue that if Luther would not have lived or if Luther would not have defied the church, possibly America and the Protestant church and the pilgrims and, and, and the Puritans and all that came later may not have come into existence in the way that it did. So if you do ever go to the, um, if you go to Turinga and visit the uh, Wartburg castle, I do recommend for anybody to do it. It's sort of interesting that it's a place of pilgrimage for lots of American Christians. Um, I always mm -hmm. find that uh, very interesting that you will see um, a lot of um, <laughs> American pastors and, and churches that come and visit the uh, the Vartburg Castle. And um, now uh, one interesting fact too about Martin Luther. Luther was a brave man. He defied authority. He sparked the uh, Reformation. He at, at his time already warned of, of the invasion of the Turks. You can read a lot of his furious sermons. But one thing that Luther also did is Luther believed at first that the Reformation would spark a um, unification between Jews and Protestants because there was a return to the word, to the Old Testament, sola scriptura, only scripture matters in that sense. And so a lot of Christians started reading the Old Testament. And here with the um, Protestant Reformation is where you actually see the, the uh, spark and the birth of Zionism. So Christian Zionism sparked up during that time a little bit later. And 
probably the place that where it caught on the most would be in my argument would be in in, in great britain uh, where it really took off at the same time luther was very disappointed that the jews did not convert to christianity and this sparked a lot of anti-Semitism. And Luther wrote furious, furious um, writings against the Jews, which actually caused a lot of hatred. And many Jews were expelled from Western Europe, causing them to move to um, Eastern Europe, Poland, Lithuania, and Russia. So there, there's a lot of history there. And now I'm going to fast forward to um, uh, just... November 9th, that day, also for viewers, very important to know. In the November 9th is a day in German history that is very much a day of mixed feelings because, on the one hand, on November 9th, World War I ended, the empire fell, the, Ke the Kaiser abdicated, went to Holland. November 9th, 1938, is Kristallnacht, the day the synagogues were burned. Um, and also November 9th, uh, 1989 is the day the wall fell. So this is a very important weekend uh, in, in, in German and in Central European history that sort of is intertwined. So, so from St. Martin of Tours, um, I mean, I mean, look, think about this. Tours was the place where, you know, um, um, Charles Martel defeated the Arabs, uh, the invasion of the Arabs in, in 714. This is the place where St. Martin was buried. This is so there's so much history on this weekend. And then we can even take it a step further and link it to today. And I'm going to hand that over to Christian because November 11th is also Armistice Day in, uh, in, in Great Britain. And um, this is a day where um, a lot of pride in, in, in the British soldiers is taken. But the developments that are now taking place have actually sparked a new twist on Armistice Day. So, Christian, with my long sermon, if you will, I'm going to hand it now over to you. Yes. So I'll try to share a picture um, in a sec. So interesting enough, um, I mean, Britain is a country that, you know, having lived there for quite a while, that is, has been so thoroughly um, secularized and a lot of the beautiful rituals except that of the royal family have disappeared but there is the one thing which is as close to religion to uh, Britain which is Armistice Day. Can you guys see the picture in the background? Let me pull it up. The one you just loaded? Yeah, yeah, just like the, the Guardian picture. Sorry. So I'm going to come to the picture in a second but just to relay it to American um, listeners. So for the Brits um, Armistice Day, um, November 11th, is as close to religion as, as it gets. And there are very moving parades, very moving um, tributes to all the servicemen who died in the service of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, but especially for World War I. And for us as Germans, it's interesting because we have all but forgotten about World War I. For us, the big war is World War II because it was far more um, um, incisive for us uh, in terms of far more happened. You know, there obviously was the Holocaust. There was the forcible expulsion of 14 million Germans. Our cities were burned and so forth. So for us, it's World War II. That's the big catastrophe. For the Brits, interesting enough, it's World War I. They call it the Great War. They've got plenty of uh, beautiful poetry dedicated to that. Like, you know, you all will know the, the poem um, in Flanders Fields, The Poppies Blow and uh, the, the poppy um, 
is sort of the symbol and a lot of people wear a poppy on on their lapel um during armistice day and a lot of the british legion the british veteran organization sells poppies and, and uh, typically terrific lovely elderly people but not only who sell them everywhere and it's it's a day of remembrance and already a couple of years ago during the george floyd riots let's call them what they were um the main monument uh, commemorating world war one the cenotaph in, in london was smeared with all kind of black lives matter slogans and people didn't take kindly to it then there was a demonstration by a bunch of Albanians. Albanians, I don't remember what they um, demonstrated for, but they ha hung their flags over it. And that wasn't really taken well. Again, in Britain, this is as close to religion as you can go. Now, in the background, you see a picture of, again, um, a bunch of uh, elderly folks selling the poppies um, on behalf of the British Legion. But behind them, you see a sea of people um wearing palestinian flags I and mean, in this picture um it doesn't look as scary as what some of the poppy sellers faced obviously this article is from our favorite newspaper outlet the guardian uh, which i believe is also uh, sold on your side the atlantic that says well they were never threatened and all but but again threatened or not and i i have seen incidences where even um, people wearing military medals were at least verbally assaulted and veterans were told not to wear their medals in order not to spark counter-protest and being shouted shame on you, shame on you against them. So for me, this is a quintessential picture of Europe um, in, at the end of 2023. There are pro-Palestinian protesters that would be a charitable, charitable interpretation. Quite often it's overtly pro-Hamas and anti-Semitic. That, them in the background crowding out the day, uh, Remembrance Day. And it's almost like the signal you couldn't even give us that one day, that one day that means so much for Great Britain. No, you had to march for like a conflict that really um, infuriates you. And I mean, I'm, I'm always rhetorically asking if, that, if you feel that strongly about that conflict, why don't you go there? I mean, why are you still here? But anyways, that's um, getting ahead of myself. So this is what's, what's been happening. We had demonstrations in London of 300,000 demonstrators quite often shouting overt pro-Hamas slogans. And of course, you can guess who the police cracked down on. There were a bunch of um, protesters of various quality. There were genuine protesters waving the St. George's flag and the Union Jack. And there were those who actually rightly would qualify as far right and who threw bottles at the pro-Palestinian or pro-Hamas demonstrators, but you can uh, take three guesses, or no, just take one guess, where the hammer of the law landed most firmly on. Yes, of the 120 or so people arrested, 83 qualified as far right. And um, obviously, it wasn't a smart thing for them to do. I liken it a bit to January 6th. You just know you're on their turf. You just know they're waiting. Um, even if you arrive there at the best of, uh, with the best of intention, they will, it will be framed, it will be cut in a way that's, that's not serving any productive debate. So for anybody who is really thinking about going up in force against demonstrations with 300,000 people, don't do it. It's, it's, it's risky and it's, it's, it's silly. And with that, I'll open up 
to the greater um, forum here. I mean, just a quick question. That picture in itself is sort of a sad representation of modern Great Britain. Uh, you know, you have you have these elderly people that are fighting for the values and the traditions and the customs of their country. And in the background, you have a conflict which is far away, but has been dominating the streets of London. Yeah, but, you know, they they don't they simply don't manage to bring 500,000 people on the streets nowadays, even though um, remembering Armistice Day is something purely good. Like, let's let's be honest, um, I, as someone from a country who was back in the day, the the enemy of the British Empire and who was defeated after all by the British Empire. I don't feel offended by poppies. I don't feel offended by people wearing these poppies because they're dedicated to all those who died in these fields. Now, keep in mind that, however, 500,000 people actually made their way through um, through London this weekend. Um, Jewish, British um, were told to stay away. Um, as Christian mentioned, um, members of the military were told not to show any medals or not to wear uniforms or stuff. And let's be honest, I think this kind of boils down the problem or shows the problem that um, the power on the streets is no longer um, or does not longer belong to any majority society. And in the UK, it's actually even worse. There is no majority society anymore. Now, keep this in mind. Um, in the UK, these people are simply the majority, the people who support the Palestinian cause, a.k.a. who think it's okay to kill 1,300 um, men, women, and children and abduct 300 people. 500,000 people think this is okay. They are the majority nowadays in the UK. Now in Germany, um, some two weeks ago, um, um, during Halloween night, we've seen some riots in Southern Hamburg as well. They're, no, they're not yet the majority of the people. Still, they have managed to um, establish their so-called Parallelgesellschaften, as we call them in Germany, if you want, parallel societies, in which they say things that I will not repeat here um, on Eurobyte simply, simply because I do not want any voice recording these things. But these people, um, like these people, were asked uh, teenagers um, by the German media, yeah, what are your views on things, etc. And these people were openly supporting the Third Reich. These these people are Muslims. Keep that in mind. And this is where I'd like to go over to something way more. Um, recent and to something that's still boiling. Um, some weeks ago when the um, when the Hamas attack on Israel started, um, I think it was um, October 7th, some days later, um, Hamburg Journal, um, uh, public like a TV show from NDR, the public newscaster here in Northern Germany, they went on the street and I think we talked about this three weeks ago, there was this woman with her two kids was being interviewed and she's like, yeah, we're happy that some, uh, we celebrated this. Finally, someone's doing something against these people. Keep in mind, uh, she had her two small boys with her um, who probably looked the same as the hundreds of kids who were slaughtered by Muslims. Um, they still, they didn't manage to find her. Um, like if you were as some, as someone of part of the German majority society, um, there was, there's some video of guys who are shouting um, 
Germany to the Germans, um, get the foreigners away, which, by the way, um, has been confirmed by uh, Germany's highest courts, which are the um, Constitutional Court and also the Federal uh, Court, the Bundesgerichtshof. It was confirmed that these statements um, do not constitute anything criminal. Now, three weeks ago, you had this uh, Muslim woman um, explaining on live television that it's good that someone's killing Jews. And... One week ago, you had some drunk East Germans who were chanting this, like, they didn't, you know, they were just stupid, yeah, but they were just drunk. They didn't do anything. Guess who was identified immediately? Oh, the guy in the white sweater. He's the son of the mayor of a small town called this and that. Like, come on, you see that there's like a double standard. You can see that um, Eastern Germans who are constantly being um, depicted as stupid or as some kind of right-wing nut jobs, they're not allowed to speak up their mind even when it's something that's constitutionally okay to say. But if someone um, actually explains that um, mass murdering children is okay, but she's Muslim, nothing's happening. I mean, interesting enough, um, in Britain, um, uh, careers are probably at the moment being made or destroyed on that at the highest political level. So there's one um, woman called Suella Braverman who is in charge of deporting foreigners and, you know, who certainly ramped up the rhetoric, as did her predecessor, Priti Patel. So I'm always skeptical about rhetoric because even when German figures like our oh, Chancellor was short said, but now we need to deport at scale, nothing will happen. But Suella Braverman heavily criticized the Metropolitan Police London and said, look, there's clearly a double standard here. Remember how they used to crack down on, on all the anti-lockdown uh, or anti-vaccine protesters, and all of this is just like entirely unimpeded, and um, and then they, they literally get, get away with um, murderous uh, slogans. And, and then the entire British um, mainstream um came came down like a ton of bricks on suella braverman and obviously our all favorite um pierce morgan i'm not sure if american viewers i think he was inflicted on american viewers he's always how dare you how dare you and mr how dare you it was actually one of the few occasions where i enjoyed uh, ben shapiro going on because he then debated uh, um um as the Second Amendment with Ben Shapiro. And that was one of Ben Shapiro's finer hours. And, and, uh, and again, uh, Piers Morgan went into full how dare you mode, but this time he went into full on how dare you mode. But for once, our jelly-spined prime minister who was never elected by anybody, not even his own party, Rishi Sunak, then came to help and says, well, she was right, um, even though it's probably unfortunate, the timing because we should be on the side of the Metropolitan Police. But anyways, so um, probably that being said. But the thing that gets me just briefly is that, I don't know if you guys have, have, have noticed this, but this, this cry and outrage that's all of a sudden happening. I mean, of course, guys like Douglas Murray and stuff that, that I mean, I guess Christian, you can tell me later. Did Douglas Murray try to do like a like a march against the Palestinian march or something? But um, the thing is, like, I'm not even going to blame Douglas Murray because he's completely spoken out. He said, "I want these people out of Britain. I want them out of my country." Obviously, in Germany, the center right media has also been calling him barbarians, and and they want the Palestinian supporters out. They want the Muslims that support um, anything that has to do with. Uh, with uh hating israel 
And even the the center right CDU has. I mean, I think for the American viewership, this is really a a, a important thing to understand. The German-Israeli relationship is sort of like a Siamese twin. It's it's so bizarre because um, the the fact that when you had Germans that were attacked, when you had terror attacks in Germany, there was no commemoration for them. When when there was when the attacks in Israel happened, um, I mean, boy, people just went out of their shell and started, uh, you know, they 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 they're outdoing the evangelicals in the United States. I mean, this is something uh, maybe important to to know that you know you have people that are linking Germans. There's the argument by the CDU leadership. They they say we have to. Make if anybody wants to become a German, we have to make sure that they um, accept the existence of the state of Israel. So they're actually um, linking German identity to the existence of the state of Israel. This is a really interesting. Um, this is a really interesting the development, and um, I I have. Um, I have really been not dumbfounded, but I'm sort of um, yeah, curious <laughs> of all the people who have been so stunned by the fact that we have all of these Israel haters in our country. I mean, didn't you listen to what they said before? I mean, people like Bill Maher, who are so upset about this. I mean, wasn't he embracing... Uh, the fact that London is now very multicultural, et cetera, et cetera. But then people like Bill Maher are just completely upset and freaking out over the fact that um, in the United States and in Europe, people are just completely going bonkers and nuts. And and people are going, I mean, campuses in the United States have been a hotbed for anti-Semitism, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, this is something in the West that we really need to sort of... Um... It's, it's kind of cognitive dissonance, dissonance, right? I mean, you've had this ideology that they've all just swallowed hook, line, and the whole reel. And yeah. now the consequences of that ideology are staring them in the face, That's true. killing their kids, but they still can't admit that it's was wrong. Before we get started, a quick word about our no ad subscriptions. We're not supported by anyone but you. We don't get Zuckerbucks. We put a lot of effort and money into building a global company, all the way from Ukraine to Taiwan. We bring reporters from around the world the best news you will find anywhere. So please support us with our no ad subscriptions. Go to the top right of any of our sites, and it'll say subscribe with no ads. There you'll find for 10 bucks a month, access to all of our sites with no pop-up ads on your phone. People love it. So please support us. We need your help. We really do. It's expensive what we're doing, and we need to grow to save the Republic, and we can't grow without support. So thank you very much. Yeah, so, thing, oh, anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt you, Fabian. I was um, just, that's what we're seeing in the U.S. The odd thing is, as, as you mentioned, Todd, um, we knew what was coming for us. Um, the squad, uh, these four um, women, everyone, like, Everyone always knew what they were about. They never um, made any illusion of their hatred of Israel. They never made any illusion about their hatred of everything that America stands for, which is also law and order, because after all, only an orderly society can persist. Um, now, one of, the, one of the few things that I'd like to add to what Fabian said before, and this is where German politics becomes kind of like schizophrenic. Um, 
In Germany, um, every party kind of agrees uh, that the security and safety of the state of Israel and the integrity of its territorial borders and its citizens um, is deutsche Staatsräson, so um, a reason of state for the German country as a whole. Now, this what does this mean after all? The last time that a German um, president said this, it was Horst Köhler, I think, when he was like, uh, the German basic law is being defended in Afghanistan as well. Um, and that meant that, ger that German soldiers um, were sent to die in the Hindu Kush mountains. Now, no German, like no German, except for Marie Agnes Strack-Zimmermann, that um, crazy old lady from the Free Democrats, um, would actually agree on German soldiers being sent to the Israel-Gaza um, border, because uh, this is suddenly where the German um, friendship with Israel is about to stop. Now, keep in mind, Olaf Scholz is nonetheless not getting tired of explaining um, the safety of Israel is German reason of state. He will repeat this over and over and over again. But as with everything with Olaf Scholz, it's just pure hot air. Like another example, um, I mentioned this before, the uh, the whole situation regarding the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, um, the German Spiegel magazine um, and the Washington Post now published that Ukrainian um, high-ranking Secret Services official um, was connected to this. And quoting, quoting the uh, Washington Post, Shervinsky did not act alone and he did not plan the operation according to the people familiar with this role, which has not been previously reported. The, the officer took orders from more senior Ukrainian officials who ultimately reported to General Valery Salushny, Ukraine's highest ranking military officer. Now, guess what? No matter how this whole war is going to end, the German government will not have the balls to say to the Ukrainian government, listen, folks, this does not work. The only thing you can hear probably is bombing pipelines is not okay among friends. Just, okay. like, just like when they were when they were eavesdropping on Angela Merkel's phone and Ronald Fofala, who was back then the, uh, the minister of the chancellor, so kind of like the spokesperson Merkel, eavesdropping among friends is not okay. okay. There... There was no ma there was no massive uh, breaking of fundamental rights. Yes, there was. There is. You're seeing yeah. like um, you've seen that meme of the non-playable character where you know you confront yeah. him with truth and the steam starts coming out of his head. You know, it's like <laughs> the, the, the matrix yeah. breaks down. That's what's going on in the U.S. because you've got wealthy Jewish people who have funded this whole ideology. Many of them, the secular Jews in New York being confronted with this Jew hatred and they're going to go buy a big ad campaign and make it work. And they're also saying, well, if you are doing this at Harvard, we won't hire you. And so it's like, it's like this massive conflict of mental capacity. I don't, I don't right. really understand it. But the interesting thing that's going to happen, um, th this was kind of like the same in Germany. It was always commonplace. Like um, the company I'm working for is a strong Jewish tradition. Um, so people who, People who go on the street in these Palestinian marches um, typically were probably not working there. But back in the days, um, like Germany has had the situation that Americans have now, I think, like where it's like if you do not um, abide by the basic rules of common decency, um, you cannot play with us. But guess what happened? 
they just made up their parallel societies. And this is what's going to happen in the U.S. as well. It already People, is happening. Yes. It, this, the whole thing, the whole spiel plays into this anti-Ivy Leagueism, which is also fueled by the Republican Party. Like, I can understand that. Um, you can see how everyone who went to Harvard, like I think um, Ron DeSantis went to some kind of Ivy League school. Now he's like, he's like, yeah, I went there. But it was horrible. I'm not like all the other Ivy League people, you know. I um, wear fake boots. I'm really yeah. tall. <laughs> I wear high heels. Oh my god! Really. <laughs> have you? He must have so much pain in his in his feet, like <laughs> sitting there. But, Somebody uh, came out this week and said, "Doesn't anybody care about Ron DeSantis?" <laughs> but, but you know what? You know what? why are they letting him do this? <laughs> I, if I had one guess on who's also wearing fake boots. It's Vladimir Zelensky. Maybe, very possibly. It's like um, yesterday I went to a bar, uh, like to my favorite Irish pub in town, and there's a new barkeeper, and he looks exactly like Zelensky. And uh, the guy next to me is like, yeah, now you know what he's doing after the war. There you go. Well, let's 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 um, for the last segment talk about something that um, Rhino Nikki Haley has embraced, and that's the idea of uh you know taking over the people of gaza and i think christian we wanted to discuss this what what's going to happen to the people in gaza okay we lose i think he froze i think he froze i think he froze i yeah. think the question is so uh oh it's, he might he, might he drop out and come back in christian okay let me, let me just jump in on that i i you know my stepdaughter is an israeli citizen you know full disclosure so i'm I'm not anti-Jew at all, uh, but I find this attack very troublesome because of the way it went down and somebody wanted this to happen. And that is what really bothers me. I think they really wanted this war on both sides and th for war's sake. And so anyway, I'll just leave that where it is. Well, and you you just see that that um, the, the you have to say that the worst of, of both sides is coming out in that sense, because mm -hmm. um, I think the the strategic issue and this is what I want to discuss with Christian is that, um, you know, you can't tell the people of Gaza to to migrate to the United States or to migrate to Europe because strategically that would. Um, completely enhance what we're already seeing in our streets it i mean it would just it would just be worse so how would how would that help israel's security i don't think it would yeah. um yeah. now christian is trying to come in but um let's, let's put him back in maybe you can is he down let me find if he's oh there he is he's back i didn't see him well, I mean, it's like um, nothing's going to improve Israel's security right now, except like the thing is, I totally agree with you, Todd. And I think it's kind of troublesome. There's only one uh, thing that will. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Uh, yeah, I, I thought you meant uh, turning Gaza into a glass parking lot. Um, but I think the really, the really bad thing is the only thing that would improve Israeli uh, security in the long run is removing all these elements from Gaza and the West Jordan area. Now, those people um, who are there, um, if they were to migrate to Europe, this would severely um, reduce our safety and security. Now, guess what? It might be related to the people who live there and their beliefs. You know, it's like... Culture. Um, 
I, I find I find it catastrophic that um, so many, especially left-wing media outlets, um, don't get tired of being like, "Yeah, it's basically Israel's fault for, you know, they're the settlers and all that." Yeah, like, come on. Um, many people um, and many countries don't agree on the whole settlement policy, but that is no reason to do what has been done and what the people in Gaza like. Um, six years, no, in 2006, the last election in Gaza, when Hamas took power, democratically, keep that in mind, they elect terrorists to power democratically. Now, um, many news outlets were like, yeah, but you know, this is 17 years ago. People didn't have an election since then. Maybe they didn't like Hamas at all. Guess what? German Konrad Adenauer Foundation, the CDU party foundation, um, together with some news outlet, I think, with or news agency, I think, with Reuters or something, they um, made a survey in August 2022 or 2023. And 25% have a very positive image of Hamas and another 30% have a positive image of Hamas. So the absolute majority accepts what's happening there. And yeah, the, the pictures we see are horrible. But guess what? When they were... Um, Gaza people are like, yeah, they attacked a hospital. They attacked an ambulance car. Yeah, and probably Israel threw the horse underneath the underneath the ambulance car as well, right? Where you can still see the hooves. Like, this is all just purely ridiculous. And um, even though I tend to be kind of critical of the Springer media in Germany, because um, like, I do like their basic um, statements of being like, like saying that they are pro-Israel and stuff, but still, the built newspaper tends to be really bad. It's like the Sun or USA Today or these free newspapers that you get in the subway. It's like sometimes you really wonder how they find so much BS to print. Um, nonetheless, they put up a really important question, which is um, who's actually controlling the pictures that we receive? Who steers the images and why do we... Um, why are we so critical of just about everything, um, but not of the images we get from Gaza, where some of the journalists apparently knew hours beforehand that this attack was about to start because they were photographing and filming them as they were driving on their motorcycles towards the border posts with their weapons on. That's think, I, I mean, that's a, a brilliant point. And probably with that being said, um, Fabian, I think, announced that already maybe the last 10 minutes or so we can, we want to do one thing that hasn't served us well in the past, making a prediction, but we will will offer uh, another thing that might serve the viewers and listeners better, which is an analytical framework to judge things through. Um, to, and so a couple of contradictory things seem to be happening. Todd mentioned the term of cognitive dissonance. So how can we on the one hand, uh, could on the one hand seemingly be the lives of um, Israeli citizens more important to the German state or even the American state? I mean, we don't even see American senators crying in the way they have done right after the attack. How can that happen? At the same time, we've been supporting open borders and um, things don't seem to be adding up. And um, there is an interesting thinker um, uh, in the podcast sphere that, that we quite like. He goes by the um, nom de plume academic agent, and he came up with an interesting analytical framework. So obviously, there is one way. If it leads to contradictory things, there would be one way to say, well, 
they're playing four-dimensional chess. This is just a master move ahead. I think we're giving our elites too much credit because quite clearly the people who are at least nominally in charge do not have that brain power. So he says, interestingly enough, the whole thing becomes a bit clearer if we look through the eyes of the three elites who are at the moment governing the United States and view them as competing elites. And um, obviously, if they're governing the United States, by inference, they're not necessarily governing the world, but they're going to have a big footprint, typically in the form of big craters. And these three elites would be the neocons, whose power base is the military-industrial complex. Um, and by the by, I think they're losing their grip on power. Um, then the next part of the elite would be the globalist technocrats, the likes of Tony Blair with the Tony Blair Institute, arguably probably the most single influential man in the world because he sells out-of-the-box um, solutions, policy solutions to governments. Like, would you believe he had a pandemic solution that he sold to governments? John so, Kerry and, and the like. Yeah, and, and obviously mm -hmm. then there's the World Economic Forum, which is sort of a similar bit technocrats who think, and, and the WHO probably, who think the world should be done in a certain way and in the efficient and rational and expert-driven way. So that's the second um, um, type of elite. And the other elite is sort of which they haven't really found a good name for them, but you could call them the chaos merchants, the like of George Soros, who simply hate the West and would like and think the West should be punished. And there was this comedian American comedian who always makes he's quite big, but I think he got pulled for a while because he got, got caught masturbating in a hotel room. And he always makes sort of masturbation heavy jokes. I forgot forgot his name. It's not Bill Burr, but um, I'm going um, uh, Louis C.K. Louis C.K. And Louis C.K. had this interview at Joe Rogan where he says, "Yeah, yeah, I get that. When the border is open, we're going to have the same problems as the." Third world, we will have lawless, lawlessness, we will have infectious diseases, we will have corruption. I'm like, but we don't deserve having it this good. And for me, that, that's a revealing moment, how some um, parts of the elite think. And then obviously you get somebody like George Soros, who never made the economic argument that we need, that, that's what the technocrats made. But George Soros never made the argument, we need all this migration to, to flourish as a country. So George Soros has been behind uh, defunding the police, putting weird public prosecutors in place, and obviously the untold NGOs that are funded, in part also by the German government. So these three power blocks are in a competition with one another. There are obviously other currents, but they don't have the same power base that these people have. And I think the neocons are gradually losing out against these other blocks. And I think this is what we might be seeing and it is interesting that also the neoblocks, uh, the neocons have lost every single conflict <laughs> they've involved the United States. It's because the in. conflict is not the, to winning is not the goal. It's just the conflict to have the conflict. Maybe. That, yeah, no, I mean, there, there, there might be something you know. to, I heard a, I, real quick, I heard a term to relate what you say this week called, they're implementing emergency socialism meaning like it hasn't come quick enough, so they have to force it, and they're using these wars and crises to do that. Well, I mean, empirically speaking, government always spikes in times of crises, and it never goes quite back to, to where it was. It shrinks somewhat, but I mean, obviously what was implemented under 
Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the bad Roosevelt. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, the, the American state never shrunk back to what it was prior to the crisis level. And there's something to, I, I want to open the discussion on, on you guys. What do you think of this analytical framework? And then based on that analytical framework, whether we subscribe it or not, let's make a prediction how the Gazan crisis will end, bearing in mind what we just said. All right. Um... Uh, I I will um, I will put my money on the fact that the neocon fraction is going to be kicked out of the game. I mean, you, 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 if you watch the um, if you watch the the, the recent <laughs> Republican debate, well, you can't call that a debate, but I mean, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy just uh, destroyed um, the uh, the neocons, the, the high heels on stage, if, <laughs> if you want to call it that. Um, I mean, man, he just. Uh, he just completely annihilated him. And he said, look, um, do you want Dick Cheney in high heels? Because we have two of them, right? And and right here on stage. And it's this notion that these forever wars are going to somehow solve any problems. And you already see with the election of Donald Trump in 2016, this was a repudiation of the neocons, even though he made the mistake of hiring neocons like John Bolton. Um, but... Uh, I just I, I do see the, the neocon power base slipping away because the Republican Party is less and less neocon, which is to me just surprising who actually advises people like Nikki Haley, who advises Ron DeSantis, who advises people to think in neocon terms. Those days are just simply over. Um, I mean, you know, you, you listen if, if you listen to guys like Doug McGregor, who's been very much um speaking on so many different platforms, including uh, German platforms too. Doug McGregor, just for the audience to know, he is a he speaks very good German and he is uh, very well versed in Clausewitz. So this is a guy who understands Europe and he understands the United States and he understands the situation that we're in. Um, he's been on Judge Napolitano's show, etc. I've been listening to his podcasts every time they come out. And he's always telling people the same message. These neocon wars don't work, and the United States has to start focusing on their own problems. So my prediction is that sort of the technocrat um, force is definitely going to um, be happy if the neocon faction is going to be eliminated. And I think the neocon faction is going to be eliminated by the technocrats, but also um the group which is not part of the establishment and that's the traditionalist maga fraction uh it's the vivek ramaswamis it's the people of a new generation that are going to basically dispose of them the question obviously is going to be and this is for the american uh, perspective and the american viewership and anybody that um obviously can vote in america and organize assemble and 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 put um any new power base together the question of 2024 is um, will the MAGA uh, traditionalist will will they uh, you know dispose of the neocons and will they have a grab on power? But that's going to be the next battle that's taking place. But to sum it up, Christian, my pick: neocons. If there was a bowling pin, they're out. <laughs> well, I'm going to do this really short, given the fact that we're I think short in time as well. Um, now, the, there's the group of the neocons, there's the technocrats, and then there's the, I think, third worldist people, right? These uh, George Soros Center and stuff. I put my money in these people. Um, I, th I think what we see right now is um, the, the neocons are out of the game. The neocons are the boomers who support, like, 
who would go through hell for Israel? And the whole thing's not happening anymore. For some reason, um, more and more Americans seem to be um, supporting either the Palestinian cause, which I really don't understand, and those who don't support either of these causes are like, we have got enough problems at home. And I think this is something that neocons never, <laughs> never really thought about. The idea that you can have trouble at home that you should take care of instead of maybe uh, bombing some third world country into oblivion. And with the whole world being more mobile, um, I'm not talking about societal mobility and all these left-wing terms, but with the fact that you simply get more and more people from these, um, well, you know what Donald Trump said about these countries, um, into the US and into Europe, obviously um, you can't ignore them that, that well anymore. And before you now say that ignoring them is meant in a bad way, I also tend to ignore um, fascists on the street, and I also tend to ignore that weirdo who's um, trying to uh, convert people for some weirdo, slightly Christian sectarian movement. So ignoring some people is just the right thing to do, but you can't do it anymore. I think. Um, when it comes to my prediction on the whole US uh, situation, um, if people in the center and right at the center realize that the only problems we had four years ago or five years ago was a president who was talking about Kofifi or who spoke the God bless the United States or who spoke Jerusalem or whose um, bad staffing picks led to Sean Spicer saying that this was the biggest inauguration in history, period. Now, these were the troubles we had four and five years ago. Think of the troubles we have right now. We have um, a U.S. president whose um, sanity, um, like, I hope that he is sane. And this is all I will say. But I never have had any doubt that Donald Trump was sane or that Bill Clinton was sane or that George Bush Sr. was sane or that George Bush Jr. was sane. The current government that the United States has does have an issue with sanity. And if your question between insanity and Kamala Harris is the only pick you have, then I think Donald Trump appears to be a really attractive choice for the majority of people. I think that sums it up really well. Probably my prediction will be on Gaza. <laughs> and uh, I think you guys have hinted at it game theoretically. So we've got three major factions. We've got the neocons, but they're on their way out, but they still hold quite a bit of power and they want, would want to help Israel. They wouldn't necessarily explicitly want the Palestinians in, but they're going to find a way to do it. Maybe the Europeans can help. Then we've got the technocrats and the technocrats are all about orderly um, phrases like resettlement to, set, uh, to, to settle a difficult conflict, resettlement. And so they're, they're going to be in favor. And then obviously the third world is like, hell yeah, <laughs> we're working. We've been working on that all along. So, I mean, I'm laughing, but I think it'll mean they're going to be distributed to Europe, the United States and Canada, where no doubt Justin Trudeau uh, will be greeting them in some sort of... Oh yeah, local... I was just going to say, like the only one who can clearly frame this in a, in a perfect way will be Trudeau. Like he'll he'll like welcome them at the airport or something. 
benefit people. Probably kind. dressed in like a local Palestinian tribal cloak or something. And I think with that back, probably Todd, any final concluding thoughts from your end? I, I think that the uh, the this has jumped the shark. I see it in the U.S. These protests when you have uh, Jewish financiers. Uh, stopping money going to Harvard, um, something's go something's happened. So uh, I believe that uh, America is angry, waking up, including the blacks and Hispanics. They want Trump back. The only caveat: Trump will win if there's an 80% fair election. The question is, will there be? And I don't even want to say fair. If there's a path for him to technically get the votes, that's the only question at this point. So. Will there be a war? Will there be an emergency shutdown? Will there be a virus? I mean, we've said this before, but that's uh, that's what is happening in America. America's fed up with this crap. So I, I see that. I don't see it in Europe, but I see it here. So we'll see. Great. In that sense, um, I think another very interesting podcast has ended. Um, we'll continue to try to blend sort of the, the squirrelism, if that is a word of current poli politics and try to dive a little deeper, present interesting personalities from European history that could show a path forward, um, have maybe five-minute uh, features on certain books. And uh, yeah, so very much looking forward to the next episode. Same here. Let's hope for uh, the sanity of everyone involved. Let's assume they're all sane. <laughs> okay, my friends, take care. We'll see you Thank next you. week. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Before we get started, so welcome everybody.